then. Children of the night, what music they make. They're coming to get you, Barbara. They're here. Ah. Welcome to my nightmare. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Oh, Kill you all. You don't know what death is. We belong dead. Here's Johnny. <laughs> I shot him six times. Only a butt. Thanks for your life. <laughs> Into a new world of parts and monsters. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to Pods and Monsters. I'm Robert. I'm Anthea. And today, we are going to be talking about one of my favorite movies of all time. If I had to make a list of my top five favorite movies, this would definitely be in there. Really? It would be. Oh, wow. Okay. And this movie is 1933's The Invisible Man. An invisible man can rule the world. Nobody will see him come. Nobody will see him go. He can hear every secret. He can rob, break, and kill. <laughs> the Invisible Man, it's always been one of my favorites. What did you know about it beforehand, Anthea? Nothing. Real, but you knew what he looked like, at I least. I mean, I knew that he was an invisible man. Yeah. I knew that it was a science experiment. Yeah. My notes are horribly wrong, and I think I may have confused part of Bride of Frankenstein with this. I was mm. like, there's tiny people involved <laughs> yeah that's bride of frankenstein <laughs> um and then i also put down i know nothing about this movie i don't remember watching it yeah I, I just think this is such a fun classic movie there's lots of terror lots of humor and as inthia can attest to it flies by like that yeah the last universal movie we did the mummy seemed to drag on for a bit Yes. The Invisible Man doesn't give you a chance to breathe. No, it does not. So uh, why don't we go through the movie, yeah? Yep, let's do this. All right, take us through it, Anthea. All right, you fools. You've brought it on yourselves. Everything would have come right if you'd only left me alone. So we have our opening sequence, and again, it's this universal logo with the little sputtering plane going by yep um and then that dissolves into an nra logo yeah lots of uh movies or universal particularly at the time were supporters of the nra it was a big deal at the time i'm not sure exactly why i think it had something to do with the war effort well there was no world war ii at that time but Mm Yeah, I'm not sure, actually. We should look into that. So it's like the logo of the NRA, and then underneath it says, we do our part. Yeah, we do Uh, our part. And actually, later in the movie, the Invisible Man says that as uh, a little nod to uh, the NRA NRA slogan. Interesting. So uh, we have our NRA, and then it goes into this classic, I call it monster font. There is a lot of howling wind and some fog. And I will say, out of all of these movies that we've watched... These are the most, dare I say, uneventful opening credits, <laughs> if not borderline boring. Well, I wouldn't say they're boring, but uh, yeah, compared they're to They're very the, simple. They, they are simple. They do sort of 
fade on like they're becoming visible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, the font isn't as striking as the others. I will say I do like the credit for James Whale, how it has a signature on yeah, it. Yeah, I did write that down. I like that they refer to Claude Rains as the invisible one. I've always loved that too, yeah. And then I saw Gloria Stewart. And then, of course, name that jumped out and made me... I mean, it hasn't been addressed yet on our podcast because we haven't done an episode on it yet. But Una O'Connor, man oh man. Yeah, Una O'Connor, most famous for this and Bride of Frankenstein. Inthea knows her from Bride of Frankenstein. I do. And, uh, and now I know her from this. Yeah, she's a, she's a little bit difficult to swallow at times. But I got to say, I love Una O'Connor and her scream makes me the happiest person alive. <laughs> Okay, that's weird, but whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we open on a man walking into a storm towards a little town. And once he gets there, or once we get into the town, we're at a bar slash inn called the Lion's Head. Yeah. And there are a lot of bar patrons in there mm-hmm. um, going about their business. And the door opens, and I will say that this is a very classic shot, and I love these ominous shots of him in this introduction, as well as a couple of the scenes that follow, mm-hmm. that this upshot, um, it's looking straight up at him as the door swings open. So this is the entrance of the Invisible Man to the inn, and... As we'll see throughout the movie, there are a ton of similarities between this and Frankenstein. And this initial shot, even though we did see him walking in the snow earlier, but mm-hmm. this shot where we actually get a better look at him is very reminiscent of the way that the Frankenstein monster was first introduced to us, where it pushes in with cuts, like gets closer mm-hmm. and closer. And this opening is just so mysterious. I love this. I love the atmosphere. I love the little tavern. It's just so eerie you're trying to figure out who this person is covered in bandages i mean obviously we know he's invisible since we know what the movie is called yeah but to everyone else in there you know they don't know what's going on with this guy it's this guy covered from head to toe wearing goggles and i will say if i was not familiar with what the invisible man looked like i too would be wondering what was up with this guy yeah so i do like his introduction because it goes right into it Yeah. And, you know, The Invisible Man is another one of the Universal Monster movies that opens up with such a strong opening. Every one of them so far, really, uh, that we've covered at least, Mm -hmm. has had such strong openings. And this is right up there as one of the best. So mysterious. He looks great. I'm sure Jack Pierce did the design of The Invisible Man with James Whale. Mm. And he just looks so good, especially when he has this big overcoat and his hat. Yeah. But this this little British pub, everyone is so English in there. Like the way that they talk, the way they look even. There's a guy that is playing a piano and then he stops and he turns around to like thank everyone for they're all applauding his playing. Uh-huh. And he just looks so British going, thank you, thank you. And then someone puts a coin in and the player piano starts again and he's all embarrassed. Everyone's very much a, a character. So, so, yeah, so Invisible Man enters and he walks up to the owners of the bar. Wait, wait, who does, I do this. No, no, no. This I'm, is my gig. I'm leading you into it. No, you're not. You're oh. telling me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, continue. <laughs> He's got his face bandaged up. He looks real mysterious. And he walks in requesting a room. He would like a room and a fire. I want a room and a fire. He also requests like a private sitting area where he can be alone and not be bothered by anyone. Yeah. The entire bar is stopped and is watching what is happening. 
and Una O'Connor, her character, which I think later on, is her name Jenny? Her name is Jenny or something. Her name is Jenny. Uh, The two owners of the bar are Herbert and Jenny Hall. Okay. She remarks that it's the coldest winter in years and that like animals have had to be kept inside or whatever. She leads him up to this area where he can go ahead and make himself at home. Mm -hmm. He immediately starts closing the blinds um, she sets a fire for him and he starts questioning the amenities of the area and if like the door can be locked, yeah. um, telling her that he just wants to be left alone. Yeah. Um, she's kind of ambivalent to it and he's very much lost in his own thoughts. She even makes a comment that maybe his hearing isn't good because of the bandages and whatnot. Right. Um, she then offers to take his coat and his hat to dry it. He refuses and she... Now, when, he, when she asks this, if she could take his coat, he just says, No. And then she has this look where she just looks right into the camera really fast. And it's hilarious. I love that look. Okay, so at this point in the movie, I was okay with Una. I felt like she brought a real balance. Like she was acting. She Mm -hmm. was not overacting. Right. Very quickly went away (laughs) a few scenes later. So I also wanted to mention when... Una O'Connor is taking the Invisible Man up into his room. We get this shot of ladies in the back room that are drinking and staring at him. Mm-hmm. Who are those ladies? Are those like the wives of the people in the bar and ladies aren't allowed in the bar? Is that what is that what's going on, you think? I have no idea. I just like that they have these like giant steins full of beer. Yeah, maybe they're all of Una O'Connor's friends maybe. and they're just hanging out. Just, or there may be just some ladies out for the night. Yeah. He also mentions that he came in by train and would like all of his stuff brought in. He has a bunch of stuff with him. Jenny goes back downstairs to go tell everyone what she's noticed about him. The bar patrons at that time reveal that they are very weary of him and everyone's trying to figure out why his face is bandaged up. Um, some people think that he has escaped from jail or something. Yeah, they're all coming up with wild stories in their mind as to who he could be. Yep, but no one knows. Obviously, no one knows anything about him. But everyone is just kind of like, you gotta be careful. Lock up your money. Just be safe around this dude. Anyway, you be careful and lock your money up. So she ends up bringing him some food because he's not eaten, I believe. Yeah, he asked for some food, so she brought up a meal for him. So she just walks in, and that's when he comments about having a key for this door. Mm-hmm. And she says, no, no key. Um, and he's like, well, I don't want to be disturbed. And she leaves, gets back down to the kitchen, and is told that there's forgotten mustard. And again, forgot the mustard. Somebody thinks, forget the mustard. One of my favorite Larry Fine lines from a Three Stooges short. Forget the mustard. <laughs> I did kind of think about that, actually. So she goes back upstairs to go bring him the mustard and just, of course, walks right into the room. And you see her look of shock on her face. And then they cut to him sitting and he's brought his napkin up right under his nose. And is staring at her. And I love mm-hmm. the pose that he takes because it's not even like a natural pose. It is clearly a pose of shock on his part that yeah. she's walked in. So when she walks in and sees the lower half of his face being invisible because, uh, you know, he needs to eat his food. The quick shot that we get, if you look closely or play it frame by frame, you'll see there's no effect on that. Mm-hmm. Claude Rains, who plays the Invisible Man, had to wear black velvet underneath the bandages to make the effect work and all that. And you'll see in this shot, it's just his black velvet clothed face. Okay. Oh, really? 
Yeah, because it's so quick, you don't need to use an yeah. effect because no one's going to notice, and it's it would be so dark anyway. But then later with the reveal, yeah. You do see so it. I really like that she is very freaked out, but she's very unsure as to what she just saw. Mm-hmm. So they have a very interesting exchange, and he's just kind of staring at her with this napkin up on his face yeah in a very conspicuous way and then he says one of my favorite lines where he says you can take my overcoat and dry it as a kid i always thought he said you could take my overcoat and fry it like why is she gonna fry his coat why do you mishear so (laughs) many things well you gotta remember also this was vhs before they redid the audio so it's even harder to hear Mm, okay (laughs) um So she leaves, and as soon as she closes that door, he takes the napkin down, and that's where we get the big reveal that he is missing the bottom half of his face, or the bottom half of his face is invisible. Yeah, a great effect. All the effects of this are great. Yeah, it really is. It's really good. So when she gets back down, she tells everyone about the bandages, and she says that it's just horrible, um, that he's horribly mangled and disfigured, and everyone then says, well, of course, he disfigured himself escaping from prison. Right. So the next scene, we end up being at a residence, it seems like, for a scientist who I just labeled as father. And then his daughter comes down. Her name is Flora. Flora. And she's worried about Jack, who's left a note that he'll be gone for an undetermined amount of time. Mm-hmm. They have a little bit of a conversation about this. And in comes this gentleman named Kemp. Kemp. Who is a piece of work. <laughs> oh, my God. Gosh. Okay. So here's some more similarities to Frankenstein. So we find out that that Jack, Jack Griffin, is the Invisible Man. Mm -hmm. Like Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, he has gone away because he's involved with his work too closely. Mm -hmm. Like in Frankenstein, they both have fiancés, and they both have a good friend who is in love with their fiancé. Victor, your idea. You know I'd go to the ends of the earth for you. Flora, dear. Please, darling, let me tell you how I feel. Yeah. And where Victor Morris from Frankenstein seems to still be a really good friend to Frankenstein. Yeah, Kemp is not. Kemp is not a good friend to Griffin. And I don't blame him for all the things that he does to Kemp later on. You know, I actually feel the same. I feel like Kemp, he's a very wishy-washy, spineless character. Yeah. And they don't make you like him in any way. Nope. So immediately you're just like, oh, this guy's a piece of work. So he talks to Flora about Jack and then ends up telling him that Jack is not a straightforward scientist, um, that he was dabbling in things that men shouldn't basically be dabbling in. And that also that he obviously doesn't care for her if he would ever just leave her this way. Then he just drops the bomb where he wants her to listen to what he has to say about how he feels about her. And I'm so happy because she shuts him down and she's like, <laughs> no. Oh, leave me alone. Oh, can you? <laughs> Flora doesn't have much character development, but I do like her. Yeah. Especially because she's not even like pretending that Kemp is a good person. <laughs> she just shuts him down. Is like, no, I got to go. Yeah. So we're back at the inn and Jenny has an altercation with Jack and she wants him gone. He's overly aggressive. He's actually extremely aggressive. Luncheon's at one and it's one nail. <laughs> and uh, she goes downstairs and tells her husband to get rid of him. 
Yeah, and to make sure to get the the rent. Yeah, because he has not paid them. So he's been there for a while and he just has not paid. And he's waiting for money to come in. And also he is busy. He just wants to be left alone because he is trying to figure out, as he put it, a way back. A way to get to back. So he's looking for an anecdote. Antidote. Sorry. He's looking for an anecdote. <laughs> antidote. <Yeah>. He's looking <laughs> He's looking for an anecdote. Not an so anecdote. he's like a guy walks in with some bandages. How <laughs> dare you? He's looking for an antidote. Oh gosh, English. Um He's looking for a cure. <laughs> and the way back. Um, the barman, so Herbert, you said? Herbert, yes. He tries or to, Mr. Hall, if you like. He tries to kick him out. It's no good, mister. You've got to go. I implore you to let me stay. I beg of you. The wife says if you don't go, she is. So it's got to be you. And Jack is having absolutely none of this and beats him and then throws him down the stairs. Yeah, he first implores him to let him stay. And he, has, he does beg a little bit, yeah. yeah. He, he tells him, you know, he has money coming in, please let me stay, and the guy doesn't listen, so he starts to pack up all of Griffin's science experiments, and this makes the Invisible Man livid, and he picks up a giant book and smacks him over the head. You know, I always thought it was a funny shot. It's a wide shot where Mr. Hall is putting his stuff away, the test tubes and whatnot, uh-huh. and then slowly the Invisible Man rises, but he's barely taller than the table. In real life, Claude Rains was like 5'3 or something, and in this shot particularly, he looked very tiny, I always thought. You know, I was very surprised. I didn't think about his height until later on when he's having a moment with Kemp, and finally he does get dressed, and they're standing next to each other because Kemp seems a lot taller yeah, Claude Rains was was very short. He was shorter than Gloria Stewart. Oh. And in scenes where they had to act together, she would not wear shoes and he had to be on a little box. But he uh, he really is a terrific Invisible Man. The best yeah. Invisible Man. He is a really good... I love his voice. His voice is so good for this. Mm-hmm. And also he just sounds deranged. So Jack throws Herbert down the stairs. Yep. And from here, Jenny shows up. And here's where Una O'Connor loses her mind. <laughs> she screams in this poor man's face. She becomes Una O'Connor. Yeah. Yeah. And he tells her to shut up. He does. <laughs> and later on, when he's nursing his wounds and he's drinking, she takes <laughs> a drink from him. They sit down together. And then she just starts screaming in his face again. Yep. So from here, the villagers call the constable mm-hmm. over. The constable shows up and tries to arrest Jack. I love this constable, played by E.E. E. Clive. Oh, he's great. He's super great. From here, Jack is just having absolutely none of this and just starts talking to himself and is like, all right, you guys brought this all on yourselves and starts to remove his bandages as he's maniacally laughing. And I like when he removes his nose and throws it at them and he's like, here's a souvenir. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is the best scene of the movie. Uh, He takes his nose off and he says, there's a souvenir for you and one for you. I'll show you who I am and what I am. (laughs) He's just crazy. And then 
probably my favorite line from the movie, the constable says, Look, he's all eaten away. Leading up to this point when the villagers and the constable confront him, it is so good, the Invisible Man's reaction, where you have that low shot, but he just rises, and he's so menacing, and he says, You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. And then you get the nose scene. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just starts taking everything off. And I like when he, like, throws his pants off, but then he just has his shirt on. Yeah. And people are just following the shirt. And then well, he they, takes they, the shirt. they sh- say to handcuff him, and they're like, how do I handcuff a blooming shirt? <laughs> <laughs> and then he takes off his shirt, and so someone is holding his shirt, and then he pretends that he's going to jump out of the window. I think I'll throttle you. Oh, yeah, and he starts choking out the constable, mm-hmm. um, who then passes out. He runs past the villagers that are in the room. Yep. Punches um, one in the stomach. Yes. Goes down the stairs, past Herbert, throws the clock. Yeah, until he tips over the grandfather clock. Right in front of Una, who goes right into, her, you know, the only mode she knows how to go into and starts screaming a bunch. Mm-hmm. And then he goes out of the tavern and i love i love um how they display him moving through space uh, where he separates this crowd of villagers and he's just like pushing everyone and then yes the best things ever he steals a bike (laughs) he rides the bike yeah he starts riding a bike if you look closely you can see the track on the ground of where yeah i was looking i was like oh how'd they do this but it's done so well yeah then what i told you is one of the funniest lines to me is when he finally stops riding the bike he throws it at them and he says you can do what you like with it it's like what are you gonna do with it besides ride a bike here's your blooming bicycle you can do what you like with it. Um, and then he has a broom and he throws the broom at the gentleman who's like trapped in the bike and calls him George Henry. He says it's like a hairbrush for him or something. He says, how's that for a hairbrush, George Henry? Which I thought was really hilarious because it was so specific. Um, he also like steals a hat from this man and throws it. Good morning, grandfather. How do you do? <laughs> During his reign of terror, as it begins, he also knocks over a baby carriage with the baby falling out. Oh, I forgot about that. And then he throws some rocks through a through a shop window. And that's mm-hmm. when he says, we do our part. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So from here, we get back to the doctor, I believe, with Kemp. We get a little bit of exposition as to how Jack got to where he is now. Right. And it's a conversation between Dr. Cranley, who is Flora's dad, and Kemp. And they're talking about how uh, there is an Indian flower called monocane mm-hmm. that takes on the color of everything it touches. I thought they said it removes the, the pigment. It, it takes the color out of whatever. Oh, is that touches. what it was? Okay. Yeah. This monocane was injected into a dog and the dog bleached. Yeah. And then it also turned mad. So mm-hmm. it went crazy. When it bleaches the dog, they say it looked like a marble statue. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it made the dog crazy and they're worried that this is what's going to happen to Griffin. Yep. So they don't want anyone knowing that he's been um, conducting these experiments on himself and that he's potentially, because I think right now they're a little unsure of what's happening with him. Mm -hmm. So they don't want anyone to know that he's done these experiments on himself. They just want to alert the police that he's disappeared. Okay. Which I thought was a really interesting way to put it. (laughs) So they want to keep this as under wraps as possible. Like the Invisible Man. 
Under wrappings. <laughs> so Kemp is now at home alone and a door opens as he's sitting in his like sitting area listening to oh listening to the radio and yeah. a broadcast starts playing. The report says that the villagers of this country village have all been stricken with the same delusion of an invisible man. It appears that a mysterious disease has broken out infecting a large number of the inhabitants. It takes the form of a delusion that an invisible man is living among them. They can't believe that an invisible man can really exist, so they think everyone's just crazy in the town. Yeah, which is really funny. I really appreciate all of the broadcasts um, in this movie. Mm -hmm. I like the voice. I like how transparent they are in these <laughs> broadcasts, even to a horrifying degree. I really appreciate them. So so for this scene, we're, we're now in Kemp's house. There's something really kind of weird in his sitting room. Did you notice it on the mantle? No. On the mantle, he has a big 8x10 portrait of Flora. Okay, so for a second, I did think that this was maybe not his house because I did notice that. It's Kemp's house. If I were Griffin, I'd be pissed if he, like, if I went to a, a friend's house and there was a big picture of you on the wall, just kind of like a little memorial of how much I love Vinthia, I would, you know, think it's a little strange. Yeah, I mean, I would too. I'd question it. I would question it. So at this point, Jack reveals himself to Kemp, who is shocked. Mm -hmm. So we see a lot of like furniture moving around and stuff. And Jack picks up a cigarette and lights it and then throws it. Yeah, he takes a few puffs and then it looks like he just flicks it away. Which is really, really kind of crappy, but whatever. Jack's a jerk. Uh, well, he's gone as, mad. Um, I just think also he's probably a jerk because I think these tendencies did exist in him, but whatever. <laughs> he tells Kemp to get him a bandage. He asks him if he has a very long bandage. Pajamas and gloves and some glasses. You'll feel better if you can see me. Yeah, and he wants these clothes because, you know, he has to be naked outside while he's invisible, and it's kind of a snowy time of year. And he has another one of my favorite lines where he says, oh, I'm frozen with cold. And then, do you remember when Griffin, as the Invisible Man, sits down in the chair, Kemp freaks out and he gets up, mm -hmm. and then he tells him to sit down, and he's not sitting down, and he picks up a fireplace A poker? poker. Yeah, he picks up a fireplace poker and says, sit down! That's another, I, feel, I always feel like that's another Frankenstein parallel, you know, telling the monster to sit down at the beginning, you know? Hmm. I mean, it's probably not, but I just like to think so. And also another parallel that's been throughout this whole movie is the invisible man wants to be left alone. And Dr. Frankenstein always says, leave me alone. He does. But then we find out here that he can't be left alone. Yep. He has some requests. But as he's getting himself situated, he tells Kemp that he pretty much threatens him and lets him know that he's strong and he'll strangle him <laughs> if he wrongs him in any way, basically. I'm strong and I'll strangle you. And he catches Kemp trying to leave and again reminds him, he's like, I can kill you anytime I want to. So he's like, go into the sitting room and Kemp goes in and has a moment where he's trying, he's debating if he should call the police or not. Meanwhile, back in the countryside the police aren't buying this invisible man story and um, well, especially the chief of police yes he just is like nope and the constable is like but it happened and because this all originated at a bar he's thinking that he was just drunk at the bar yes we end up getting introduced to the chief of police here and he just is very much 
skeptical of what everyone has to say. Thinks it's a hoax. So back at Kemp's place, Jack decides to tell him what is happening, but he decides that he's not going to tell him everything. And then and as far as I can tell, starts telling him everything. So he tells him that it all started five years ago, where it was through trial and error, and he started injecting this stuff into himself. And then one day he actually got the measurement concoction correctly, and he started to disappear. And that was when he decided that he needed to leave to go develop the antidote Mm -hmm. for it. And so he explains the village part. So basically we find out that he didn't want anyone to see him in this state of disappearance. He wanted to present his findings as soon as he had the antidote for this. Yeah, and I imagine the longer he goes without going back, the more crazy he's getting. Yes, that's what I'm gathering as well. Especially you can kind of see it from how he was at the beginning of the movie to when the constable goes to talk to him. Because it at first kind of just seemed like he really needed a place to concentrate and get develop this antidote and then after that when he just brings up the whole like robbing and all that stuff yeah it's just he's definitely not the same person that we met a few scenes before so he's the reason that he's come to camp is because he needs a partner to take care of things that only visible people can do so you were confused about this i was very confused about it because again there's a lot of exposition in here (laughs) um and he's got a he's got a lot of flourishes to his voice and i'm trying to take notes and so there's a lot going on so he explains he needs help for really small things yes basically he needs someone to look out for him for Mm -hmm. things that would give him away yes you find out if like the if it's snowing outside or raining that'll collect on him and will give him away if there's any soot outside um he does leave footprints if any part of him gets dirty you can see that dirt yeah. if he's eating you can see his food digest yep he says uh, even the dirt under his fingernail would give him away <laughs> and then i like when he says on a foggy day he would appear as a bubble yes that's pretty good One of my favorite lines that he says in this sequence is when he explains how difficult it is being an invisible man walking downstairs because we're so accustomed at looking at our feet. (laughs) Yeah. It is difficult at first to walk downstairs. We are so accustomed to watching our feet. But these are trivial difficulties. It's a nice little detail. Mm -hmm. Never think about that when you're invisible. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So he says that the drugs that he took lit up his brain Uh, to the fact that he could rule the world as an invisible man. And he goes on to describe his reign of, like, murder and terror. We'll begin with the reign of terror. A few murders here and there. Murders of great men, murders of little men. Just to show we make no distinction. So at the beginning, it's kind of like he needs someone to help him with these basic things. And at the end, it's pretty much how much power he has as an invisible man and how he could rule the world and just take everyone over and when he talks about ruling the world all the power you could just hear it in his voice and you could see it in his subtle movements just how mad he's getting and how how excited and how much um energy he's getting Mm -hmm. just talking about it yep So he also needs to go back to the village. This is the one big catch for the evening is that he needs to go back to the village to collect his books. And he asks Kemp to take him there as well as telling him to warm up the car because it gets really cold to roam around naked. It's cold outside when 
you have to go about naked. Everything's flipping and flopping. The, well, it is. Um, <laughs> the village is not too far away by car. Or, I think they said 15 minutes or something. Yeah, and that was like 15 miles. 15 miles, maybe? It's 15 miles. So they should be able to make it down there, no problem. And so he gets into the car and he puts a little blanket around himself so you can see him with his little blanket. Then he makes um, a little crack about being colder than the icicles on an Eskimo or something. Yeah, which I was like, well, <laughs> you guys could have just really gotten with like a whole icicle situation, but okay. I, I also like on this ride over, he tells Kemp, that on days when he's tired, he'll make Kemp invisible too, so he could take over for him. Oh yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> they get so funny. They're just gonna go back and forth on being invisible. I got the impression that he would just be invisible all the time, and then sometimes he would make Kemp invisible. Maybe, but then why was he looking for the antidote? So he could make Kemp uninvisible. Maybe. So back at the village, the chief is questioning all of the patrons and wants to prove that it's a hoax. And everyone that says anything, the guy who's riding a bike, the man whose hat got stolen, he says, where were you before this? And everyone was congregated at this bar. So he's just trying to say, you're all drunk and hallucinating. So Jack ends up sneaking into the inn to get his books and he makes it up to his room and he throws the books right back down to Kemp. And then on his way out, he decides that he's going to terrorize the bar. So he moves the ink around because the the chief of police is writing something down. Mm -hmm. So he moves a little ink pot around. But he throws the ink in the policeman's face. Yes. And like everyone ends up fleeing the bar in terror. The policeman is left there and he goes ahead and he strangles him, I believe. And then he throws or I guess bashes his head in or something with like a bar stool. Yeah. And he kills the police officer. Right. Immediately from here, we are back on the streets. And um, I believe that this is not in the village anymore. It's in town. Mm -hmm. And there's a newspaper headline about the killing of the policeman by an invisible man. So the police here are trying to figure out how to trap him. And so they've come up with a plan and they've also figured out that he's <laughs> he's mad and he's invisible. They're trying to figure out a way to, to trap him up and decide at one point that they're going to have a broadcast warning that goes out at 1030 to let everyone know about this invisible man, mm-hmm. which I found very interesting. And it's done so well where the broadcast begins and the, and during the broadcast, you kind of see a montage of people locking the doors. And- yeah, because initially the plan is that there's going to be just some p- police patrols. Right. Then the next morning, a lot of backup is going to come in and then they were going to search for him in a much broader range or something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're seeing everyone reacting to this broadcast because it interrupts a party. It appears that an unknown man by scientific means has made himself invisible. He has attacked and killed a police inspector and is now at large. During this broadcast, there's also a call to action to people if they want to come help so i think there's one where there's like a family that's listening to this radio broadcast in their living room or in their one bedroom house and the father just gets up grabs his hat and like marches out the door <laughs> yeah, um, he, he takes like a gun or a stick or something did he i don't remember i thought he grabbed just like a hat or something and so kemp makes a decision to call flora's dad and he tells him that he needs to come over but to come over in the morning because he his whole plan is to call the police to come get him. Flora overhears this conversation and has her dad take her over to the house 
immediately. Meanwhile, Kemp, again, being who he is, decides to call the police. Some friend. Yeah, I know. Jack does catch him, like, immediately after, and Kemp is somewhat able to, like, kind of, like, worm his way out of it, but still, like, Jack's like, no, I know what you did. But at that moment, Flora and her dad end up showing up, and Jack wants to see Flora alone. And I love the way he says, Flora. Flora. It's, Flora. There's a little bit of his humanity comes back to him when he sees her. Kemp has come up with a plan where he wants to bind him and chloroform him for the police, but he just, like, needs some time. Like, the timing isn't right for Kemp. I'm not too sure why the timing isn't right. I think maybe because the police are out searching, so they wouldn't be able to get the backup. They wouldn't be able to get the response. Well, I think he would have wanted to wait for them to come over, and by this point, he's awake. He wanted him to be asleep when they capture him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Flora goes to talk to Jack and Jack is super happy to see her and tells her that he did all of this for her because he didn't have anything to offer her before. He was a lowly assistant. So basically he wanted fame and honor from this science experiment that would lead him to riches and prestige that he could actually offer her, which I never got the sense that she wanted any of these things. It just, he felt like he wasn't good enough for her. Yeah. However, this very quickly spirals into him having a much more diabolical plan because obviously he's gone crazy that he wants to sell this off to the highest bidding country so that they can go ahead and create an invisible army and then that country whoever has an invisible army can take over the world Mm -hmm. um so there's no good intentions like i guess this started with good intentions but yeah there's no good intentions here And then here you see how power hungry he has gotten even more so. Mm -hmm. And he uh, talks about how everyone's afraid of him and even the moon's frightened of me. Even the moon's frightened of me. Frightened to death. The whole world's frightened to death. Yeah. Flora wants to help him, wants to help him get better. And he just doesn't want any of this. He's become power hungry and he really just loves scaring people at this point he loves the power that he holds over people the police arrive and it instantly upsets jack because he hears the dogs and he looks out the window and he sees them coming and he urges flora to leave but she doesn't want to leave and she even offers to hide him he sends her away as the police arrive and i like the police line they all just link hands and start slowly <laughs> closing in and it's a whole like red rover situation like if he were to run between their arms they would obviously feel him because yeah. their arms are linked but they start closing in on the house very slowly here's kemp good old kemp looking at what's happening and decides that he's gonna open the window and open the blinds and that is where jack seizes his opportunity to leave the house but not before very specifically threatening kemp's life and says that he promises to kill him specifically tomorrow at 10 (laughs) (laughs) and an invisible man is always true to his word He then um, starts to terrorize this police line. He slaps one of them. He pinches another one's nose. And then he (laughs) grabs another one, which he's very strong, apparently. Which I guess this might be a side effect of this serum also. Could be. He swings them around by his feet and eventually takes his pants off of him. (laughs) And then he flees from the police who then become a jumbled mess. And I like that you can follow the pants 
up and over the wall. Then we see this wonderful scene of this woman screaming and running in terror as he's putting the pants on and he is dancing and singing. He's skipping and singing down the road towards her. Yeah, skipping towards her saying, here we go gathering nuts and may, nuts and may, nuts nuts and may. Here we go gathering nuts and may on a cold and frosty morning. Whoops! And that scene used to make me laugh hysterically when I was a kid, seeing this lady running away screaming from a pair of pants. I mean, it is pretty funny. The police are now suspicious and they're questioning Kemp and uh, Flora and her father about why they're involved. Specifically, Flora and her father. Like, why are you here? And the police start to just kind of say, didn't you have another assistant? And they are very much questioning what's happening. Kemp, being the weasel that he is, immediately gives up Jack. And now everyone knows exactly who the Invisible Man is. Meanwhile, while this is happening at the house, Jack has been having a really great time. He has been killing people by throwing them off the cliffs. When he kills the people on the cliff, he kind of just whispers in their ear first and then pushes them. It's really scary. Here I am. Won't you please, you found me? Yeah, it's pretty horrible. And then he derails a whole train. Yeah. Well, the people on the cliff, they were the search party looking Mm -hmm. for him. And yeah, uh, he talks earlier about derailing a train that he'll go in and... You know, just kill the uh, the controller, the person that would switch the tracks. I, I forgot yeah. what we call them. And that's exactly what he does. And a whole train uh, ends up going over and you find out that 100 people were on that train. Yep. He does end up stealing from a bank, which I thought was really funny that no one paid any attention to this, like the register drawer just walking through the bank. <laughs> and then he gets outside and he starts throwing the money away um, to give it to anyone who's walking by. And I love that he just is like, money, 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 money. <laughs> He's like throwing all this money. A present from the Invisible Man. <laughs> money, 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 money. Here we go back to the police um, and there's a reporter questioning what's happening. And it's our good old friend, Renfield, played by... Dwight Fry. There you go. Yeah, it's always good to see Dwight Fry pop up in these things. Yeah. Can you tell us what plans you've got for capturing him? The police here are trying to figure out a plan and they decide to use Kemp as bait to lure Jack to the police station. Kemp is saying no, he feels too exposed with that. So basically the plan was to grab Kemp, take him to the police station, and then Jack would try to go into the police station because he told Kemp that he's going to kill him at 10 p.m. So he's going to, you know, they're like, you'll be inside of the police station at 10. We'll protect you. And he's like, no, I don't feel comfortable with this. So instead, they devised what I thought was an even worse plan, but whatever. (laughs) They were going to dress him as a police officer, sneak him out of the house, take him to the police station, sneak him out the back, let him drive back home, and then he can, from there grab his stuff, and drive wherever he needs to go to get away. Yeah, why wouldn't someone be with him the whole time? This sounds like a horrible plan. He agrees to this horrible plan, and so the police start arming themselves, and they have, like, paint guns, spray paint guns, kind of, to spray him down so that they can track him. So if anyone hears anything, sees anything, they can track him. They've also put, like, this dust on the top of the wall. Yeah, Um, it's a, it's a, a layer of soil. Yeah, so he... If he climbs over, that'll also alert them that there's something up there. Right. And this is on the interior of the police station. So there's a big wall going all the way around, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a secure police area. And one policeman has the idea to paint the top and then 
the paint will get stuck to him if he climbs over. But then the chief says something like uh, he'll smell the paint. So he comes up with the idea of the loose soil. Mm-hmm. So they follow through with this horrible plan. And the whole time... Uh, I like when Kemp is being walked into the police station. In that net? Yeah. That net full of people? He's, yeah, he's surrounded by like 12 people, shoulder to shoulder, front behind to the sides of him and they all have a net around them (laughs) (laughs) i do really like the use of nets in this movie yeah which is really funny that they never actually get to use the nets i like when they're sweeping that room yeah and they walk from one end of the room to the other with the net to see if he's there (laughs) so they follow through with this plan kemp ends up leaving going back to the house meanwhile at the police station everyone is overreacting to everything a cat ends up jumping onto the wall it's a white cat and of course they spray it down and now it's a black cat Uh, (laughs) and some of the the soil falls on another police officer who says that he heard something and um they all just expect him to be in the police station like this is it like you know they're even counting down the minutes however jack has been with kemp the whole time he says, which I don't think he's been with them the whole time. I think we saw him at one point open the gate and go into the house. And I think he just waited at the house. I mean, he could have just waited to the house, but no, I think he probably went with them. It wasn't, he didn't have to be close with him the whole time, but he could have been keeping an eye on him, like going on the ride yeah, with him there, but to the police station. But yeah, it, it's, it's just funny. They did all this and Griffin just says, uh, you know, I was, there the whole time i know exactly what you did and just lays out exactly what they thought they were so smart doing yep um he tells him that he always keeps his promises and he from here kidnaps kemp basically he chokes him and ties him up and puts him in the car and then he tells him that he's gonna stage this accident and he's just gonna drive him off a cliff and he does they show you the whole thing where he just drives this thing off the cliff the car falls explodes <laughs> yeah it's it, it's pretty horrific it really you know? i was very surprised he tells kemp why he's upset with him and calls him a dirty little rat and mm-hmm. uh, off he goes to his death and the way that griffin describes the death before it actually happens is really good then you'll have a big thrill for a hundred yards or so till you hit a boulder then you'll do a somersault and probably break your arms then a grand finish up with a broken neck yeah he's very very graphic with it from here he walks into this barn he needs a place to sleep he is so tired so he hides in this barn and i love the way they show him walking into the barn and covering himself up with hay or straw or whatever and he even says "Mm, this is so comfortable and like settles (laughs) into his little bed yeah a little bit later the owner of this barn walks in and hears him sleeping so from here he runs over to go tell the police and it is snowing it's snowing very, very heavily. So uh, the police decide that they're going to lure him out of the barn by setting the barn on fire, which will cause him to walk into the snow and they'll be able to see exactly where he is mm-hmm. and that they will just kill him. They're planning on arresting him and taking him in. They're like, we need to kill this guy. So that's it. If you think about it, by this point, he's killed more than 120 people. They did bring that up. Yeah. They, he... they, yeah, they do. The, they count the numbers of how many people he's killed. The Invisible Man has to have the highest body count of any universal monster. Oh, yeah. I mean, just with that train alone. Yeah. Yeah. So surprisingly, they do exactly what they're going to say that they do. They set fire to this barn. He wakes up. He runs out of the barn right into the snow. 
you see his footprints. Did you notice the mistake there? Oh, that they look like shoe prints? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did notice (laughs) that. Yeah, because he's the invisible man, so he should be naked. They should be feet prints, not footprints. Yeah. (laughs) Or you know what I mean. Yeah, shoe prints. They should be feet prints, not shoe prints. Right. So the entire barn is surrounded, but they're able to see him. And then the police shoot him. And you see uh, the imprint of his body falling down dead. They take him to the hospital, and at the hospital, a doctor comes out and says that due to the severity of his injuries and the fact that I guess they really can't see anything, they don't have a way to help him, he is dying. So they aren't able to treat the wound. They invite Flora to go in and see him, and as he dies, he will become more visible um, because the effects will essentially wear off of his body. Right. And uh, he has a great final line Mm -hmm. where he basically says the same thing that Kemp said earlier to Flora, which was, I meddle in things that man must leave alone. Yeah, that is really, it's, it's a good repeat of that line. And then you hear him give his final breath. Yes. And as he's dying, his body comes into view, basically from the inside out. You see his skull and then it fills in with his skin and his hair. And he's a he's a very tiny man. <laughs> yeah. This is the first time we see Claude Rains. Uh, yeah. Uh, in the flesh. Um, we, I was always a little disappointed with the way he looks. Agreed. He looks too... Too put together. I kind of wish that he had looked a little bit more disheveled, a little bit crazier. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, I think he does look a little too put together. But, yeah, he dies. And then the end. (laughs) Yeah. Now, does this one have a suitable ending for you? Yes. Now, this one, this is one of the rare times which James Whale was happy about where it got the dark ending. It didn't have a happy ending tacked on to the end of it. No. I think there wouldn't have been on, any those tacked on and well what they would have done was he wouldn't have killed Kemp and then Kemp would have walked off with Flora saying darling darling you know I think Flora wouldn't have wanted anything to do with Kemp but that's just my opinion but yeah I really it's done it's over it's done with he dies the end there really didn't need to be anything extra to that yeah so what did you think of the picture I thought it was great yeah I love it so much yeah, it's good. It's really good. So last year, when I went to Universal Studios for Halloween Horror Nights, they had a wonderful Universal Monster Maze, and they had a very tiny section dedicated to this movie yeah. and The Invisible Man. And it was done very well. We'll find a video, and we will link it in the show notes, which you can find at podsandmonsters.com. <laughs> um, it was done with black light. I didn't get to go. I just saw the videos online, but it looked like it was really well done and it really kind of looked like the original Invisible Man. Yes. I mean, it had all the, like the black light, like fluorescent coloring, mm-hmm. but um, he's just holding up all the potion bottles right, and laughing a lot. Yeah. And part of his face is missing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. They did a good job. And it's very kooky. And that's what the Invisible Man is to me. He's a very kooky, crazy villain. Very kooky, crazy villain with a sense of humor. is always laughing. Mm -hmm. And the whole movie is very humorous, uh, which is a trademark of James Whale. Uh, You saw a little bit of it in Frankenstein, you know, with Dr. Frankenstein's father being sort of a comic relief character. Then you get more of it with the Invisible Man, and then you will also get it in Bride of Frankenstein. I do think that this is the best use of that humor Mm -hmm. that doesn't depend on someone being over the top. The main character is over the top, 
Yeah. But it's explained and it's completely fitting. Yeah. Well, Dr. Pretorius Bride has lots of humor too. And Does he? he's in the same realm, I would say. Oh, good, yeah, but it's fitting. I mean, yeah, yeah, but yeah. then you also have like Una O'Connor who yeah. shows up and she's just like, and it's quite a shame because I did really enjoy her character up to a certain point. I just didn't <laughs> think that she, she pulled like a Willie Scott. The trouble with her is the noise. <laughs> and just yelled in this really? poor man's face, which is like my least favorite thing that Willie does. I just don't see a need for that. Yeah. Um, I think it's a little bit overreacting. I just don't think that people would normally do that. Yeah, but that's the humor of James Whale. And, you know, when they were filming this movie, like he had trouble like not laughing hysterically whenever Uno Connor was on screen. He just loved her. She's a good actress. Yeah. I just think that Maybe, okay, if the script calls for 10 screams, <laughs> dial it back to, like, six. That's just me. Poor Una. I know, and I feel bad, but I will say that this movie gave me a greater appreciation for her, because I did think that she played the innkeeper very well. It's a I, much more interesting role than Minnie in Bride. And, yes, because uh, it doesn't feel like she's just there for... I felt like she was being utilized like she was she was there for a reason yes and I really appreciate that and she's a good actress and I liked it I liked the subtlety I liked when she's super freaked out when she meets him at the beginning I thought that was really great because that had a little bit of a comedic edge to it yeah. without being obnoxious but yeah I, I do think that I have a little less dread and trepidation when it comes to Una now at the end of this well, good. But yeah, so I liked it. I enjoyed this movie. I highly recommend it. I am glad we watched it because I want to like Una Connor more. <laughs> and I think that this led me to like her more. I liked Flora. Flora. Out of all of the women that we've seen so far with these movies, she seems a little bit more independent uh-huh. and strong-willed. Kemp was a weasel, and so I was not sad that he got murdered in any way, shape, or form. And yeah, it was good. It's a good movie. So should we talk a little bit about the production of this movie? Give me your facts. All right. Here's a little bit of a history of the Invisible Man. Do you know who wrote the Invisible Man, the book? No. The book was written by H.G. Wells. Actually, I did know that because it says it. At the beginning of this movie. Darn it. Yeah, H.G. Wells was a great author of science fiction, did a ton of stuff. Uh, You know, he did War of the Worlds Mm -hmm. and uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. And with The Invisible Man, that was published in 1897. Mm -hmm. So roughly 35 years before the movie came out. Oh, wow. He was still alive when the movie was released. So when Universal was in the market to make a movie about the Invisible Man, H.G. Wells wasn't sure if he wanted to do a film adaptation of that story. Mm -hmm. The reason is Island of Lost Souls. I'm sure eventually we'll talk about that one, do an episode on it. That one starred Charles Lawton and Bela Lugosi. And he was upset with it because it kind of turned it into more of just a standard horror movie. It's Mm -hmm. a really good movie, Mm -hmm. but I guess it differs from his book too much. So he wasn't sure if he was going to give the rights to do it, but obviously, eventually he did. You know, when H.G. Wells wrote the story of The Invisible Man, invisibility has always been a thing of the past through books, through fairy tales, through 
whatever, hundreds of years, there's always been, you know, like invisible cloaks, invisible whatever. And it's always been done using magic. Okay. And this was really one of the first times that he used a scientific method to achieve invisibility. Mm. It really hadn't been explored before that. Okay. So Universal, they bought the rights to the book in the early 30s, but they only wanted to use the name The Invisible Man and H.G. Wells' name. Basically, they wanted to call it H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, but make an entirely different movie. Mm-mm. Just so they could get you know the money for it. And that's basically what they did with Edgar Allan Poe's The Black Cat. Oh, really? Or The Raven. Uh-huh. The movies have the title of the Edgar Allan Poe stories, but... But they have nothing to do with the stories? Yeah. Like The Black Cat, there's a black cat that Bela Lugosi scared of in it, but it's a completely different story. Oh. Why were they doing this? Just so they could bring more people in with the notoriety. Oh, that's upsetting. Because then you'd go in expecting this book, an adaptation of this book that you've read. Yeah. It's not a good thing to do. No. (laughs) So that was their original thinking about it. There were a ton of scripts written for this movie, maybe like a dozen, and lots of them were very different. That didn't really use the source material. Mm-hmm. There were even scripts written by Robert Florey, who you remember from uh, being the first director of Frankenstein, okay. who got the job taken away from him, mm-hmm. and John Huston, And even James Whale himself wrote a treatment for the movie. One of the versions of the movie that was written took place all in Russia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then finally, James Whale brought in a man named R.C. Sheriff, to adapt the book and sheriff you know he read the other treatments and things and other scripts and he read the book and he thought there was a lot of good stuff in the book and he wants to make an adaptation close to the source material Mm -hmm. so he did and that's what the final movie is you'll find that it's very close to what the book was have you ever read the book i haven't okay should we start like a summer reading club or something maybe (laughs) next year that'd be nice and then we'll like um, we'll go through a lot of the book adaptations of these movies. Yeah, we should. Sorry, I should reverse that. The book that these adaptations are based on. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So the final script was pretty close to what the original story was. Mm-hmm. But the Griffin character was not a bad scientist. Okay. And he didn't really have those ideas of power and taking over the world. But there was a book written by a man named Philip Wiley called The Murderer Invisible. Okay. And in that book, it involved a story about, had like an invisible octopus and then it had invisible rats that went to New York to spread the plague. Hmm. (laughs) The main character in that was power hungry and maniacal, like how Griffin was. So he used a lot of that material to pepper into the H.G. Wells story. Oh, nice. Okay. After the script was written, it was then sent to H.G. Wells because for them to buy the rights, he decided he had final script approval. Okay. And he approved it. Oh, nice. So the movie got its director in James Whale. Mm -hmm. James Whale previously did Frankenstein, and the Universal executives really wanted him to make a sequel to Frankenstein. Mm. And James Whale had no intention in ever doing that. He didn't want to do it. And he, in part, took the Invisible Man as a way to sort of get the Universal executives off of his back and lure them away from the Frankenstein Part 2 idea. Gotcha. But... <laughs> it ended up happening anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm glad it did. It's a great film. It is. And he... We'll talk about it when we get to the Bride of Frankenstein episode, but he had a lot of demands because he would only do it if 
he got to do it his way. Yeah, I don't blame him. So the main character of The Invisible Man, The Invisible Man himself, it was first going to be Boris Karloff. Mm -hmm. In fact, there were some press materials written up that show like a poster of The Invisible Man and it says Boris Karloff on it. How would you feel if Boris Karloff was The Invisible Man? I don't think I'd be upset by it, but I do think it's not terribly appropriate. I don't know. I don't, I don't. I feel like he's much more reserved. Yeah, I don't think he couldn't have gotten as maniacal. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. So Boris Karloff was going to be the original Invisible Man, but he had some sort of dispute with Universal. Uh, I don't know what the dispute was over, but he ended up parting ways and not doing it. He took uh, a couple years off from Universal, I think, and then came back with Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, okay. What year, what year is Bride of Frankenstein? Bride of Frankenstein is 1935, two years after The Invisible Man. Okay. So after Boris was out, James Whale wanted to have Colin Clive for the part. Mm. Do you remember Colin Clive? Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say. How would you feel with him? No. I think he could have been all right. I don't know. Um, I think maybe, well, I think it's just too reminiscent of him being Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah, maybe so. That I think that it wouldn't have worked. But it would, eh, I don't know. The reason Colin Clive wasn't the one was because he decided he needed a break from Hollywood and he wanted to go home to England for a while. So then they had to find another person to um, be the Invisible Man. Mm -hmm. And at one point, they were watching clips from movies or something, trying to figure out who they would get to play the Invisible Man. And James Whale heard the voice of Claude Rains and said he wants Claude Rains to be the Invisible Man. And the people, the other producers, the executives with him weren't so sure because Claude Rains, at least in whatever they were watching, he wasn't that good in it. They were okay. like, you sure you want this actor? He's not that great. And he says, he has the perfect voice for it. I, that's who I want. So they got Claude Rains. Now, Claude Rains, he uh, was a stage actor. And this is his first feature part, his first American part. Mm -hmm. This is his debut. And he did great. Yeah. It's one of the best performances in uh, all of cinema, I believe. Thank you. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that caught me off guard. Sorry. Last week we were just talking about Robert Shaw being amazing. Yeah. I guess it'll be two weeks from when this comes out. Mm -hmm. But I just, I don't know if I would put him up there with Robert yeah, Shaw. I think he's really great, though. Especially in terms of voiceover performances. It's a really good voice. What else did he end up doing? After The Invisible Man, he played Larry Talbot's father in The Wolfman. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Okay. He was the Phantom of the Opera in the 1943 remake. And then he did a bunch of movies that he got a lot of notoriety for he was nominated for four oscars and what? those movies were mr smith goes to washington oh uh -huh, i've heard of this casablanca oh mr skeffington and an alfred hitchcock film notorious oh so claude rains he uh he was a fine actor uh, mm -hmm. you know got all those nominations and yeah he was in a ton of stuff but James Whale hired him on the basis of his incredible voice. He mm -hmm. enunciated everything perfectly, and which is funny because he initially had a really thick Cockney accent and kind of had to work on getting rid of it as he became an actor. Oh, uh, cause, really? Because he was an actor, you know, on the stage in England. Like a Charlize Theron situation? <laughs> I guess so. But his voice wasn't always so deep and gravelly. 
Really? In 1916, Claude Rains was part of the London Scottish Regiment, and he was deployed somewhere, and a mustard gas bomb went off next to him. Mm -hmm. And the last thing he remembers before getting knocked out was he heard someone yell, they got Rains! And then he went out, and they thought, you know, it maybe killed him. Uh Uh-huh. Because of that mustard gas explosion, he lost 90% of his sight in one of his eyes. (gasps) And his vocal cords became paralyzed, so he had to do treatments to get them working again and get them back. And when his voice came back, it got this kind of gravelly, lower voice, Wow! which really worked in his favor. It really did. Good for him. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) well, you know what I mean. (laughs) That's so horrible. (laughs) So after uh, Claude Rains, we have uh, Gloria Stewart as Flora. Yeah, so I can tell you right now, I for sure know I've seen two Gloria Stewart movies. 180s from each other. Man, oh man, was I looking at her face and I'm like, oh. Did you see it? Age. Very faintly. So what Anthea is talking about is Gloria Stewart later went on to play Old Rose in Titanic in 1997. Yeah. So that's what? 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 65 years apart. Yeah, that's bonkers. I mean, she looked great in Titanic. What I was looking for, I was listening to her voice to see how much 60 years changes your voice. It's been 84 years and I can still smell the fresh paint. Titanic was called the Ship of Dreams, and it was. It really was. So yeah, so Gloria Stewart went on to be in Titanic, and she was also in James Whales' earlier horror film, The Old Dark House, with Boris Karloff. Mm -hmm. She respected Claude Rains and did ultimately enjoy her time working with him, but she did have some problems. The scene that they did together, because there really was only one scene they did together, Claude Rains was always sort of upstaging her. Mm. And he's sort of talking and walking at the same time, sort of pushing her out of frame or putting her back towards the camera. And this was really annoying her. So she actually talked to James Whale about it. And James Whale had to talk to Claude Rains about, you got to be professional with this. This isn't like a stage play. You got to give people their you know light to shine in as well. Uh-huh. Eventually, he came to and uh, ended up being fine. Gloria Stewart, I did get her autograph one time. You mailed in for it? or No, I have only gotten two autographs at conventions. One was the guy who played Godzilla, mm-hmm. and the other was Gloria Stewart. It was at the Son of Famous Monsters convention in 1995 at Universal Studios. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, I bought a picture of the Invisible Man there, and she signed it for me. How wonderful. Yeah. She ended up dying in 2010 at the age 100. That's amazing. That is such a long life. Yeah. William Harrington plays Kemp, a character I don't like. I want to know if you like Kemp. Tweet at us. Yeah, if you're a Uh, Kemp fan. Yeah, yeah. Tweet at us. Kemp, Kemp. Yeah, tweet at us or drop us a line on on the Instagrams or email us at podsandmonsters.com because that guy's <laughs> bogus. I don't really have much information on him except that his character lives in the book. I'm happy that he does it in the movie. Yes. Well, also, the Flora character is not in the book. Oh? So Kemp would have been a completely different character if there's no fiancé to Yeah. Oh, I wonder if he's not a 
piece of crap in the book then. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Henry Travers plays Dr. Cranley, and he's most famous for playing the angel that needs to get his wings, Clarence, in It's a Wonderful Life. Well, who are you then? Clarence Art, buddy. A.S. 2. Angel, second class. Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you. It's a Wonderful Life is a great, great movie. It's like a Twilight Zone. Uh, I mean, agree to disagree, I suppose. And and Alfalfa's is in it. There's a lot of hype around that movie. I'm not into it. (laughs) I don't, I just, I can't. I don't get it. So, to round out the cast, uh, as the constable, we have E.E. Clive, who also appears as the Burgermaster in uh, Bride of Frankenstein. Monster, indeed. The Burgermaster? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have Uno Connor again as uh, Jenny Hall. And then there's a couple of cameos in this movie. One being Dwight Fry. Yes. That we saw earlier. But also, there's a point in the movie where a bunch of people are calling the police station with ideas on how to catch the Invisible Man. Yes, I really like that, by the way, that little collection of people. Yeah, and one of the callers is John Carradine. Well, listen, I've got a way to catch him. Of the Carradines? Yeah. Is he the Papa Carradine? He's the Papa Carradine. Uh, He's the one that I know best because he's in a ton of the Universal Monster movies, and he played Dracula in House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. Drop the stick from your hand. So there's the cast, and then you have John P. Fulton, who did the special effects for the movie. And he was the top effects guy, and he was for many years beyond. He worked on a ton of things. But he devised this whole system on how to make the Invisible Man invisible. So what it was, was Claude Rains would have to wear a skin-tight black velvet suit where he'd be covered from head to toe. Okay. And then he would be placed in front of a black velvet background. Okay. So he would sort of appear invisible. And that way, whatever he's holding will be the only things that get shown. So, for instance, if he's just wearing the the shirt, Uh just the shirt will show. And then you would film a blank background and then put the blank background behind the new footage that you just filmed of just the shirt. Do you get it? No. So basically, imagine you're filming Claude Rains. He's all in black. So I'm filming Claude Rains in his shirt and in the black on the black background. And then I'm also filming. So that's one film. So that's one film. And then the other film would be the room he's in, the room with all the people. And then I'm going to put the Claude Rains film on top of the room film. And that's what gives me that imagery. Correct. Got it. The most difficult shot that John Fulton had to do in this movie was when the Invisible Man was taking his bandages off while looking in a mirror. And that shot was done in four pieces because you had to get the back of Claude Rains, the front of Claude Rains, the room, and the room as it appears in the mirror. He said that was the most difficult special effects shot he's ever had to do. And and it's pretty seamless. It's not bad. No, it's uh, not at all. It still pretty much holds up. And then the other special effect of the movie were the invisible footprints that would appear. Mm -hmm. As we talked about how they're shoe prints instead of footprints. Yeah. But basically, they built foot-sized planks of wood that would just drop. Yeah. And then there would be fake snow on top of it, and it would just follow it as it dropped. Uh So that was a pretty simple effect to do. James Whale was very happy with the Invisible Man. He 
was very happy with the way it turned out. And he was very happy also because he didn't have to tack on a happy ending like he did with Frankenstein. It was great. And has to do with Bride of Frankenstein later, as we'll see. Mm -hmm. Years later, I always thought this was a funny story. The Invisible Man was playing at a movie theater. Mm -hmm. And Claude Rains took his daughter to see the theater. And it was a cold, snowy night. And he had his face covered with a scarf. Uh And he brought down his scarf to get the tickets and he says, two, please. <laughs> and the ticket taker recognized his voice immediately and freaked out. And he was like so excited. And he said, like, no, the tickets are on me. You're going in for free. And Claude Rain says, no, no, no. I'm going to pay for those tickets. <laughs> and he says, no, I'm good. You know, you're going in for free. No, yes, no, yes, no. And it went on like for so long. They're arguing whether it's who's going to pay for the tickets. Mm -hmm. Finally, they see the movie and throughout the whole movie, they were sitting in the back, uh, Claude Rains and his daughter, and he sort of gave a live audio commentary about how they did the movie and how they did the effects and all the shots. Oh, that's awesome. It was a wonderful experience for her. And then he did talk about how he had to get a life cast made at some point. I'm guessing it was more for the ending shot when he finally materializes. That Um, makes sense. But he had to get a life cast where, you know, they, they basically put straws in your nose and he could only breathe through that Mm -hmm. and apparently when he did that he uh, got some flashbacks from that (gasps) accident with the mustard gas oh no and it was very uncomfortable for him it it did not like that Mm. so that's basically the story of how the invisible man was made it went on to have several sequels it was i I wouldn't say it was as popular as of, of a franchise as the frankenstein wolfman's and dracula's but it it held its own, and they had they had a good number of them. I didn't realize that there were sequels. Mm, no. Yeah. Um, after this was The Invisible Man Returns in 1940 with Vincent Price in the lead role. Ah. Then after that, you have The Invisible Woman, which is sort of a kind of a screwball comedy version. Oh, gosh. And then there's The Invisible Agent. Okay. Then there's The Invisible Man's Revenge. Then Vincent Price comes back. The Invisible Man Returns was the only one Vincent Price did. But then he came back for a little cameo at the end of Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm the Invisible Man. And then there was a movie, Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man. And who was the Invisible Man in that? Arthur Franz. Oh, okay. No idea who that is. The final thing I would like to say about the Invisible Man mm-hmm. is uh, it was it was parodied very greatly in a movie called Amazon Women on the Moon. Mm-hmm. It's a comedy from the 80s, and there's a segment called The Son of the Invisible Man, and it's so good. It's shot to look exactly like the 1933 version, like in the in the little bar and all that. It's black and white, and it stars Ed Begley Jr., and he's dressed as the Invisible Man, and he has his friend, and he, and he says, I'm invisible, get ready, don't be scared. And he takes off his bandages, Yet he's not invisible. He thinks he's invisible, but he's not. So he's running around naked and he's doing things like there's people drinking at the bar and he's moving their like chess pieces. Pretty scary, huh? Ooh. Oh my, now how did that happen? Must be a ghost in here. I feel like we're gonna have to watch this movie. It's got quite the cast. Yeah, it's 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 a really it's really good. It's a spoof on 1950s science fiction movie. That's great. So that's it with The Invisible Man. I, you know, as soon as I saw it when I was a kid, I became obsessed with The Invisible Man. I loved him. I, I had to go out as a kid and see Memoirs of an Invisible Man, the John Carpenter movie with Chevy, Chevy Chase, because I <laughs> love The Invisible Man so much. I never saw Hollow Man, though. Kevin Bacon? Yeah. Mm, I did. Was that any good? I don't remember. <laughs> 
as you probably know by now, I collect Universal Monster toys and a lot you of You do? Yeah. What? <laughs> and a lot of them are Invisible Man. In fact, I have an Invisible Man model kit that I painted. And I took a screenshot from the movie of the Una O'Connor portrait on the wall. And I printed it out and painted a little frame around it and put it in the little model. <laughs> so Una is always with Claude. I hope you all enjoyed reminiscing about The Invisible Man. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, I hope you watch it soon. It's a very fun time. The movie goes by like this. And... <laughs> Yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, it is. It's a very fun movie. So uh, where can the people find us, Cynthia? Uh, you can find us at Pods and Monsters on Facebook and Twitter. On Instagram, we're Pods and Monsters Podcast. And then, of course, you can find us at podsandmonsters.com where we have our list of coming attractions so pretty much the movies that we will be watching we did get a request in pretty recently of a movie that we were planning on doing but because we got a request in we went ahead and just kind of bumped it up a little bit so that movie should be uh, reviewed or talked about whatever it is we're doing on this podcast <laughs> pretty soonly so it's really nice to hear what people want to watch or want to hear us talk about so if you have any requests, please submit. Let us know. But yeah, so you can find us there. And also we do have an episodes tab and in it we have more pictures and links to trailers yeah. and any sort of episode links or whatever will be in there that we aren't exactly putting in our show notes but we super recommend checking out podsandmonsters.com. Yeah, and so far, the only trailer you won't be able to see is Free the Invisible Man because it's invisible. <laughs> Actually, the reason that it's not there is the trailer isn't available. Uh, it was lost with time, I assume. Anyhow, if you're enjoying Pods and Monsters, please take a moment, consider to rate and review us on iTunes. That'd be amazing. Or even letting your friends know about our podcast and your enjoyment helps us out so much. Yes, so for Pods and Monsters, my name is Robert. My name is Anthea. And how's that for a hairbrush, George Henry? <laughs> oh, man. Brr, I'm frozen with cold, so you can take my overcoat and fry it. Let's go. Bye. Forgot the mustard. Forgot the mustard. <laughs> I always said you were a dirty little coward. You're a dirty, sneaking little rat as well. Goodbye. <laughs>